Hello and welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker, and on today's show, I'm joined by John Harney. Howdy, John. Hey, Bob. How's it going? It's going pretty good. How are you? Uh, things are good. Nice, nice and busy. Good. I... <laughs> the way we like them, right? Exactly. So on today's episode, we'll be talking about some of the history games we've been playing recently, as well as some of the history titles that will be released, we hope, in 2020, of fingers crossed, because a lot of these games might get pushed back into next year. But before we got started with all that, I wanted to extend a hearty welcome to our new listeners. Over the winter break, we received a large bump in downloads for this podcast, as well as views on our YouTube page. Uh, And so I wanted to spend a moment to kind of introduce ourselves and the show for new listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with us and our work. Uh, First of all, History Respawn is a show about history in digital games. Sometimes we talk about history of digital games, but primarily it's about history as portrayed by games, video games, or computer games. And our goal is to talk about those games and that history from a position of scholarly expertise, but not being too terribly serious or highbrow about it. Uh, So some of the games we cover include the Assassin's Creed series, Bioshock series, uh, but sometimes we'll extend it out into things that touch on historical topics. Uh, Say, for instance, the portrayal of paganism or the devil in the Diablo series. Uh, So there's quite a wide gamut of games that we cover for the show, and hopefully there's something in it for you. Uh, I am a history professor at Louisiana Tech University. I have a PhD in European history in particular, a focus on Britain and its empire during the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, That empire is quickly crumbling, thank goodness. Uh, (laughs) uh, And I also teach some classes on the history of games, as well as the history of cyberspace, uh, to the extent that that history exists. Uh, And then John is a recently tenured professor of history at Center College in Kentucky. And John studies modern China, modern Asia, uh, and he also does a, quite a bit of work with digital humanities. Uh, John, you just taught a class that involved history students creating bots. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I did. So uh, so people who've long-time listeners, I guess we can start calling them, will know that you and I teach these kind of similar classes on history and video games and getting our students to make games. And I kind of was inspired through that experience to try and bring 3D printing into the classroom and get the students to start thinking about stuff. So... I gave these groups a Raspberry Pi each. This is a little credit card size, $35 computer. And um, I told them they had to have something that could interact with humans that was based on um, an historical figure or event. So we had uh, a Mount Vesuvius and Pliny the Elder. We had uh, Robert Johnson at the crossroads. That was my favorite. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. So he had, uh, he's standing at crossroads. It's a Lego figure, but all dressed in black. Oh, wow. when the Raspberry Pi, when you pressed a button, he would move his arm to uh, to strum his 3D printed guitar and it would play some blues music. And then wow. he had red red LEDs to signify that the devil had oh, taken him. Oh, wow. So, um, John, that's that awesome. Was fun. I'm, a, it was, I'm a huge, huge blues fan. And oh, you, you would have loved it. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Eric Clapton as well. And for Eric Clapton, that is like the defining event in human history. It's Robert <laughs> Johnson and the devil. I mean, he basically, the last three albums he's done has been about that. <laughs> but it was great. And it really, and it really came from 
uh, not just my experience, but our experiences doing all this. You know, we talked to each other a lot about uh, video game pedagogy, and it was a big inspiration for, of course, Bob. When Bob started his respawn, this is a lot of what was driving things. So uh, that's been really cool. It was really rewarding to see kind of principles that worked for us that were really driven, I think, by our interest in video games and thinking about it in classrooms. And you can take other stuff and the sa that same creative impulse totally works. So yeah, it was great. It was it, it was great. Awesome. And I love it. Awesome. I love all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if you enjoy the History Respawn podcast, please do also check us out on YouTube. Uh, the podcast we generally use is a mixture of what we call regular episodes, which feature interviews with uh, other scholars about particular history uh, as portrayed by games. Uh, but then we'll also have discussion episodes like this between John and myself and perhaps another historian guest uh, to talk about kind of what we've been playing and uh, what topics related to history and games we're kind of interested in at the moment. Uh, and then for YouTube, we've got a mixture of episodes, regular episodes, again, with a scholarly guest. Uh, and then also we'll occasionally have uh, Let's Plays uh, that will feature online on Twitch first, but then the archive version will be uh, posted to YouTube, uh, usually within 24 hours. It's pretty fast um, to do that now. I'm, I'm kind of amazed that all, that all works so seamlessly. Um, but with that introduction out of the way, I thought I would turn things back over to you, John, uh, and you've been playing, uh, Anno, is that correct? Yes. Anno 1800, the latest Anno game. Nice. Okay. So this is a series that I have been interested in for a while, but I've mm -hmm. never actually gotten into. So what is, what is the gist? What's going on with Anno? So Anno is basically a city builder. You know, I, I actually had a very similar experience with Anno, which is that now and again, an anno would come out that I was interested in. There's an anno that went to the moon. There's an anno with kind of underwater cities and things. And I would try and get into it and not really follow what it was trying to get me to do. Um, this latest anno, anno 1800, appears to have been extremely well received, um, both by kind of a broader video game audience, but also by people who like the anno games. They're saying this is the best since anno 1404, which is kind of a, which is a bit long in the tooth now, quite long in the tooth. Um, uh, but it fits the theme we'll talk about in a second, but it seems to have been easier to get into. And that was that was my experience, that it's been easier to get into. They have a campaign which, you know, I think your mileage is going to vary on how much you like the campaign. I'm enjoying it well enough. It's clearly designed to just teach you how to play the game. But your father was murdered and framed and all these different things. So there's this kind of overarching narrative that kind of, you know, gets you to meet other oh. islands and, and gets you to go to the new world yeah. and gets you to build things. So, you know, it, it works so it's kind of a It's a macro history by way of a micro history, right? Here. Yes, actually. Yeah, the campaign. That's it. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's exactly kind of what the campaign is doing. Um, and in Anno, at least in 1800, which I now have the most experience with, and I think this is fairly typical in Anno, you're, you basically have your own little island and the map has a bunch of islands. In Anno 1800, there's a map, there's an old world map with about six or seven islands um, and there's about you, you plus four NPCs or so. And then there's the new world, which is kind of the same thing again, but there's different resources and re some resources are more readily available and everything else. And you don't unlock the new world for a while it takes you a while to kind of get to the point where you can actually get there um and and so you start the game with your island and you have a warehouse on the coast and you just kind of go from there and effectively the mechanics of the game are all about production loops which is you have to have enough workers and so you build homes to attract workers um and then you try and keep them happy with various goods once you have the workers you can build more resource gathering kind of nodes and from those you can build you know um secondary and tertiary level production units and 
And that's kind of the game. And I, I don't say that in a negative way because that's just the very basic core mechanic. Mm -hmm. But it's a game that knows what it wants to do. And in Anno 1800 is doing it really well in trying to balance these kinds of things. Um, I'm not the best at the game. I lose I lose a lot of money, but um, I'm enjoying it. Um, and at the moment, my little town has become a city. That happened as I was recording the episode that comes out later today uh, for History Respawn on the YouTube channel. Um, and I have uh, agricultural workers. I have basically working class people. Um, and I have artisans. And as far as I know, I think the next upgrade will be industrialists or something like that. Um, and so, as you're probably gathering from what I'm saying, and maybe from the title of the game, Anno 1800 is ostensibly set in 1800, although it kind of borrows New World ideas that are realistically maybe a century earlier, and lots of Industrial Revolution ideas that feel to me to be about 30 or 40 years later. But it's a it's an Industrial Revolution set city builder. Hmm. Interesting. So, it's a city builder. What is, what's the pacing like? Does it feel like an RTS or is it kind of more sedate? What is, what is that like? So it's an interesting game because it kind of throws these quests at you. You know, could you because you have a ship and you can build more ships. You can build a fleet if you like, if you can afford it. And so an NPC will contact you. You know, could you escort my guy over here? Could you pick up this um, this stuff that was thrown overboard? And it's kind of a way to make little bits of money. And there's been some very light kind of fighting. And as I, I think in the sand box mode there could be more of that if i wanted there to be so i could go to war with one of the other islands and it but it, it's definitely not core to the experience the city building itself is core to the experience so it feels fairly um it feels chill but part of it is as a paradox gamer with crusader kings 2 and your universalis 4 and everything i hadn't realized how used i was just pausing everything getting all my ducks in a row and unpausing and um anna doesn't let you do that now the the standard pace isn't crazy fast or anything um, but it doesn't let you uh, it doesn't let you just stop. So you can get into these interesting moments where like, oh, God, oh, God, things are on fire. You know, I don't have enough workers. Um, I need more sausage to keep the workers happy. You know, <laughs> um, so it's kind of interesting, but it, it never feels hectic and frustrating. It definitely, I think, could feed you into a loop where it's like, oh, crap, I think I've lost the game. But I think all city builders kind of do that. You know, yeah. if you run out, if the dollar amount hits zero. Well, then that that's it. So, uh, no, it's pretty it, it lets you. Uh, it lets you kind of putter, putter along at a at a respectable pace, I think. Good. Okay. Comfortable then. Um, yeah. And it, so yeah. this is a game. Am I right in thinking this is developed by Ubisoft? It's an Ubisoft game, very much so, to the yeah. point where you can use their club points to buy special um, uh, little monuments for your town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with your Ubisoft points. Yeah, you know, yeah. for those who don't know, Ubisoft is this whole parallel economy of points you can earn by playing ubisoft games you can spend them on in-game goodies yeah well so that's interesting i mean <laughs> i am very of course we're, we are both very familiar with uh ubisoft's third person action games mm -hmm. uh whether that's you know something like assassin's creed or watchdogs or for honor or something like that um but it, it's interesting to think about them and adapting history in kind of a city builder context and i've I really, it's a shame that I haven't played any of these games. I own several of them, but I've just never got around <laughs> to them. And, you know, me you know too. I do, I, I've been yearning and my wife um, has really been yearning for a new city builder experience. And mm -hmm. it's not uncommon for my wife uh, to go back uh, to the old Pharaoh uh, and uh, uh, Emperor uh, city builder games from the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s <laughs> and play those because there's just not a, a you know, a rough equivalent to those out now. And so it sounds like this might be up her alley. Um, in fact, we yeah. just we just bought on sale. We bought Frostpunk, 
which is this, you know, kind of alternate yes. history uh, Victorian really uh, steampunk uh, yeah. city builder game. And she's been meaning to play that, but we've just been so busy with work and the yeah. kids that she hasn't got a chance to yet. Frostpunk's really good. I hear the new DLC is fantastic. But um, Anno 1800, I was surprised. I think what I like most about the game is how accessible it actually is because it's funny the series i think the first game was 1998 or something like that Mm -hmm. so and it's funny because they've been consistent if you go back and play like some of the earlier anno games the basic concept is the same which is so for example you you need a warehouse and you start out with a warehouse and you build a bunch of roads like any city builder you kind of do your layout with your roads and you build down the places where the people are actually going to live and then you put like a church and a school near them so they're happy and all this kind of stuff um but it's funny, the thing that keeps happening when I play Anno 1800 is that there's no warehouse. It's like, oh, I forgot. And so you have to build all these warehouses everywhere. And it feels like such a weird little vestigial thing that they probably <laughs> could have got rid of by now. They just haven't. Um, but but for you know for gamers of a certain age, I would never call uh, your wife that, Bob, but you and I, I can call gamers of a certain <laughs> age. For you and me, it's like, that's fine. If anything, that actually helps me. I've got, okay, I know it wants me to, to do that. Um no, I'm actually happy because I'm really enjoying Anno 1800 and I can see myself going back and playing more Anno games after this, and it, which is good because I, like you, own at least four of them. <laughs> uh, Anno 1800 is the first I've ever played. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you bring up this issue of warehouses, and I've been thinking a lot about the structure in the mechanics of strategy games, and this idea of the warehouses kind of fits in with that. And we were talking recently about uh, Hearts of Iron 4, and how the main kind of focus mm. in that game, and you don't realize it when you start playing, but the main focus is building factories, right? That is right. the most right. important thing. That's your currency. And there's always this kind of part of a strategy game that unlocks it for you or is kind of the main focus, even if it doesn't kind of surface that, even if mm-hmm. the game doesn't surface that immediately for the player. And I think that's that's interesting. It's kind of a, a language of strategy games that you've got to pick up on. You know, so you start a new strategy game. It's like, okay, well, what's, what's going to be the thing that's going right. to unlock this? What's going to be the focus? Uh, even if the game isn't going to run through that in the tutorial. I, I couldn't agree more. I think this was the great um, moment of genius for Crusader Kings two in particular, where just focus on your character, yeah. focus on your character, focus on, on your, on the next in line, which, you know, actually, if we're looking at medieval Europe, isn't a terrible analysis of how politics are certainly how the Royals wanted politics yes. to work. Yes. Um, you know, this dynastic kind of system. I, so I had that experience with Creator Kings too. I'm always telling students, you know, I, I'm not getting the most, I'm not getting everything I could be getting out of that game, but my God, I'm enjoying it. And, you know, just before Christmas, we talked a little bit about, um, um, Unity of Command 2. Yes. Where, oh, now I get it. And, and then suddenly I'm, I'm taking a long, hard look at a very, very, you know, hardcore strategy game about medieval medieval Japanese uh, military tactics. Um, but because Unity Command, in that case, it was the supply concept. It's like, oh, I get it now. Literally 20 years of just not getting it, and now I get it. Um, it's quite it's quite outstanding when develop, designers can do things like that. It's really astonishing. I've got two quick uh, specific questions regarding the history in Anno. It, yeah. I, I mean, you mentioned that there's kind of some reference to Europe and the New World. Uh, is there any reference to the slave trade in that game? So not yet. And this is something that kind of came up in um, when I was doing the History Respond episode, and it's about to go up later today. It, it, <laughs> Representation is an interesting thing in the game, and I, I I don't want to get bogged down representation every single time. Um, 
but it's kind of an intriguing thing. Anno 1800 leads into the gaminess. Mm-hmm. You know, this is such a mechanics-driven thing. And it feels it feels very 1990s in a way that I like. You know, it, it has this kind of feeling like this is an old-school type strategy game. So suddenly you have a talking head, and maybe the talking head is, maybe she has blonde hair and white skin, and she sounds terribly English, you know. And maybe it's a, you know, it's a man of color who is accompanying you to the new world, and he's a light accent. In the same way that when you click on every single building in your city, somebody goes, you know, hello. There's lots of that kind of, you know, <laughs> there's lots of that going on. There's a lot there's of Michael Caines walking around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it's funny because, you know, because the game, it doesn't say you're basically British Empire, but you clearly are, you know. Um, And so I've only just unlocked the new world and I'm interacting with these people in the new world. And it's all kind of in an interesting place. Um, uh, So they haven't mentioned slavery. I don't think they're going to mention slavery. And again, that's part of it, I think, is where you get into this whole it's called Anno 1800, but it's kind of a 19th century vibe to the whole game. Yeah. And even the New World stuff feels a little bit like they've kind of... Crammed it isn't fair because it works very well from a gameplay gameplay perspective. Um, Thematically, it's a bit of a... Historically, I should say, it's it's a bit of a... You know, they're kind of jumping over a bit of a gap there. Yeah. But it works okay. Yeah, it sounds like it it reminds me a bit of Tropico in the way that... Yeah. Yeah. That game is kind of awkwardly placed in mid to late 19th century when... They can kind of, you know, sort of, given the context, they can kind of sort of skirt the issue of slavery. And it sounds like Anna's doing a a similar thing, Um, even though, you know, I think calling something, you know, an Industrial Revolution game, setting it in 1800, Mm -hmm. really, when you're talking about Britain and the Industrial Revolution, you're talking mid-18th century, 1750s, 1760s is when that gets going. And, of course, that's also the high point for (laughs) the... Uh, the slave trade. So yeah, right. It's. I mean, I'm just saying. I'm not trying to criticize yeah, or single yeah, yeah, out yeah. this game in particular, but I think it's a decision that a lot of these types of games make. And I think, and I, you know, I think listeners and, and people who play the game are, of course, welcome to differ with me. I do think it's a dodge. I think the dodge works. Like I think they did dodge it. You know what I mean? And I think, <laughs> you know, and it, it, it's just interesting to see. So, for example, my avatar in the game is, um, you know, a Chinese princess, which I kind of picked randomly, you know, and they just have a bunch of, you know, your avatars just sit up there in the corner all game. It doesn't mean anything, yeah. you know. In the campaign, you know, your your sister is this white girl. So, like, they, you know, it's doing, I think, what video games should do, which is, like, if you, for any reason, would prefer the little face up in the corner to, like, not be a white guy or, or be a white guy, whatever the heck it is you want it to be, we don't, we don't care. It's fine. Just do what you like. Um, and I so I think because the game succeeds in that it kind of it kind of skates by a little bit i struggle with this a little bit in history respond episode because i kind of you know i'm kind of talking on my own and i kind of come back to this idea of how to manage representation idea um and i think i ultimately kind of came down on the side of it, it feels like such a clear video game they managed to land in that space if that makes sense yes. i don't mean that as a, I don't mean that as a cop-out i mean they're just kind of doing what they're doing but like the new world is clearly intended as a kind of a caribbean-ish style new world and but like a post-slavery caribbean and they just they just kind of don't go there Mm -hmm. and i would say i suppose in their defense the the dangers of going there are so enormous and 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 you know and and to give them the benefit of the doubt which of course i think we should give them um you wouldn't want to run the risk of of upsetting people and giving people a a a difficult experience playing the game so yeah yeah And, and to be fair to ubisoft in particular they've got 
a pretty long history now of yeah, dealing with yeah. those kind of difficult topics, uh, especially through the Assassin's Creed series where you had uh, Assassin's Creed Liberation, uh, which was set right. in uh, New Orleans uh, in the Caribbean uh, during uh, this kind of same era, late 18th century, early 19th century. And then you also had Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry, uh, which was right. a DLC uh, and then eventually a standalone game attached to Assassin's Creed 4, and that kind of deals with uh, slavery uh, in Haiti uh, and the kind of the early beginnings of the Haitian Revolution. So um, they've they've dealt with this, you know, some some more successful than others, right. but they they're not too terribly shy uh, about dealing with these uh, sorts of things. So um you could definitely definitely understand why they would make these types of decisions but uh, it's just something that i think players should be aware of that there is a very close relationship particularly when you're talking about the british empire a very close Mm -hmm. relationship between the industrial revolution and the slave trade well i kind of make a i kind of make a joke about it as i'm filming the episode and for the half hour that i'm playing i'm like i'm hoping to discover the new world in this episode because i'm running out of money and my entire goal here is to uh, prop up my economy back in the old world by finding stuff in the new world, uh, which, depending on which country you're looking at in Europe, kind of kind of was the case in some cases. I think overall they pitch it well. You know, definitely I encountered a group from the Caribbean last night playing, and it's like, oh, yeah, hmm, um, yeah, you know, I don't know. It kind of feels a bit accented. But then if you kind of take a step back, every single NPC in the game has this kind of goofy having fun with it kind of stereotypical accent, you know, so your sister sounds very posh and, you know, all the, the working class people all, they really do sound like, you know, Michael Caine strolling around and Beryl O'Mara is the Irish crime chief and she's on the Island next to you. And, and so I think that because they're kind of consistent and kind of poking a bit of fun at every single possible person they could it, because they're doing it the same way with everybody that makes it that makes a big difference you know mm-hmm. and it's a game it's a game that revels in the abstract you know your people are unhappy they need sausages make sausages for them you know <laughs> they need a pub nearby they're complaining you don't have enough schnapps which is kind of amazing the secret, <laughs> yeah the the, sec, the secret to an early uh, successful city when you're still growing is to drown your workers in sausages and schnapps which you know <laughs> sounds legit to me so Oh, God. <laughs> you know, I, I I will. I only made a very passing reference to it. But uh, if there's anybody left out there who's particularly enamored with the writing of Karl Marx, you're going to love this game. This is just oh, wow. It's, and this is like, yeah, this is this is this is how, you know, this is how Marx depicted all this in unflattering terms, for sure, because because the whole mechanics of the game, they completely bear the idea like you are this. It's this God game where you literally you open up upgrade mode and you transform agricultural farmers into working class people and then transform working class people into more well-to-do artisans. If only it were that easy. (laughs) Right, exactly. Like this is kind of, this is theoretically, you know, if Adam Smith was completely right with nothing wrong at all, this is how it would work. Yeah. Oh God. (laughs) I was just doing some uh, readings for a course on uh, the history of uh, kulaks uh, in the Soviet Union and uh, this kind of forced process of turning peasants into industrial laborers uh didn't turn out so well uh spoilers uh (laughs) all right well uh anything else on anno uh just that i think i i I think that the issues that we were just talking about i think they are important ones you know 
Um, but I do think the theme works really well. Um, I, I think for better and for worse, you know, it's a lot like the Civilization games we talked about before. This notion of viewing history as a linear progress through human experience, it has its issues, but there's a reason it works for video games. Um, and Anno, Anno is a very welcoming game. Um, and I'm looking forward to getting into other Anno games after this. So, you know, like yourself as well, Bob, if you're ever thinking about getting into this series, 1800, 1800 is a great starting off point um and uh it's, it's just a well-made game i think it's well made mechanically and i think that it's well made in the way they approach the history um with that get it a jail card they have the whole time of it quote unquote being just a game which isn't something developers out there saying but that's kind of it kind of emanates that vibe but in a good way yeah yeah all right well let's uh turn our attention to this list of history games that may or may not be published in 2020 it still feels really weird to say 2020 or 2020 it's very strange to me um but i've got kind of a, a general list here and these uh first few games are games that are all but guaranteed uh to come out this year um the first one that i had written down was neo 2 uh, mm -hmm. which is a game that is basically a dart souls like uh, set in feudal Japan and starring a uh, strangely accented uh, Irishman, right, John? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And his spiritual companion, Saoirse. Yes. <laughs> which is my daughter's name. It always cracks me up. Well, the first Neo was, I thought was great. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just kind of, you know, I'm in, I'm in a parental fugue here. I'm like, I, I know, I know little to nothing about Neo 2, which I'll confess. I'm sorry. This is derelict of my duty. I've kind of done on purpose because I'm, I liked the first one. Yeah. I kind of want to see where they go. Um, there's this is kind of this could be the year of samurai games and also samurai souls like games. There's yes. a few coming out this year. Yes, yeah, and so uh, one of the other ones we've got here is Ghosts of Tsushima. Yes, uh, which, which is, uh, is a PS4 exclusive at least for now, and uh, that one has got uh, several attractive trailers attached mm -hmm. to it. But I know next to nothing about it. But that that fits into that mold uh, with along with Neo. And I, well, I'm excited particularly about Tsushima because um, I believe it's set during one of the Mongol invasions of Japan, mm -hmm. um, neither of which were successful. But also uh, Tsushima, like it's it's this it's effectively it's it's borderline as close to Korea as it is to Japan, kind of an area, kind of part of Japan. So um, it's kind of I'm going to throw it an academic word. I'm sorry. Um, it's a liminal space, as academics love to say, which mm. means that it's kind nice. of yeah. I just so, adjusted my glasses. <laughs> A lens through which, no. Uh, so it's a uh, so it's right there. It's 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 very much Japanese territory, but it's kind of, it's it's on the edge of Japan, and so I, I have no idea how much they're going to get into that. But I'm really curious to see if they will. You know, in the sense of like here we are on the edge of Japanese society facing an invasion, um, and it looks beautiful. It looks gorgeous. Um, so I, yeah, I'm I'm excited about that. Great. As someone who plays Dark Souls games and likes the samurai, just as a point of interest <laughs> and i should mention that john did a really really great uh, history respawn episode youtube episode on the first neo uh, in which he kind of discussed a lot of these uh representations of feudal japan but then also some of the uh, the ghouls and specters yeah uh, that are featured uh in that come out of japanese folklore so uh, go and check that out uh, if you yeah, haven't neo, seen the, that the neo series the first neo game at least as you'll see in the video, um, it really engages the folklore in ways that are extremely fun. Because I feel like in the Western world, at least, we know about 
one or two kind of key aspects of Japanese folklore and 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 horror fiction, like the girl with the long dark hair, the ring movies, that kind of thing. Um, but there's a really there's a deep there's deep stuff just going to the medieval period, and Neo did a great job with that. I mean, when you're when you're one of the bosses is a giant caterpillar, right? Mm-hmm. Which which is a thing in Japanese medieval folklore. They did a really fun job with that, so I'm I'm optimistic they'll do it again. Yeah. Uh, the other game that uh, has piqued my interest and one that uh, has gotten a, a lot of attention, uh, especially on message boards, uh, is a game called Iron Harvest. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this one, John, but it looks like it will come out uh, this mm-hmm. year. And this is a real-time strategy game that is set in an alternate reality of the 1920s, just after the end of the Great War. And basically the idea is that uh, the Great War is uh, happens, but it's different because it includes um, the use of huge mechanical uh, devices, uh, basically walking tanks, uh, and it's got a lot of uh, kind of interesting artwork that's attached with it. I think that uh, the images from the game actually came out of a set of uh, kind of imaginative uh, alternate history artwork that came out in the mid-2010s. Uh, and is now being kind of adapted uh, for this game. So I'm I'm really curious about this one. We, you know, because of the nature of the show, we do end up talking a lot about uh, alternative history here on mm-hmm. History Respawn. And I think that, you know, going forward, we're going to get a lot more games that tackle alternative history uh, with reference to the interwar period, right? We're going to be going through the centenary right. of a lot of moments uh, from the interwar period, 1920s, 1930s. Uh, and that is a rich period for history. You know, it's the basis for my dissertation on <laughs> policing. So it's a topic that I'm a huge fan of, and I'm interested to see kind of alternative takes on uh, the world and the history related to it at that moment. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about it, and I'm particularly excited, at least as someone who's not big into steampunk fiction, or I'm not immersed in it, as it were. It feels kind of like a late steampunk to me in a way that mm-hmm. is exciting. And I was going to ask you, Bob, actually, because that was what I was thinking, the interwar period. As someone, of course, who's who, who knows quite a lot about that period, you already kind of inferred we're probably entering into a phase now where we're going to be hitting the anniversaries and everything. How do you feel about this? Is, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I just feel the interwar period is not something that popular culture... I, I, we're not, I don't see us getting into it as much as other periods. It, maybe I'm not being fair. I feel it gets lost a little bit kind of in the World War II centric kind of narratives. I mean, hmm. it sounds It sounds like maybe, maybe you don't feel the same way. I mean, do you, do you think, well, if you disagree, you should disabuse you of my notion uh, of my notions, but also like if we're seeing a change, what kind of things do you think we could see? Well, I think I would disagree. I think that the interwar period has the potential to, generate a lot of historical fiction, uh, whether that comes in the form of games, uh, but probably particularly uh, movies and uh, of, uh, TV shows. Oh, no, I, I think it has the potential. Sorry to, to interrupt. I definitely think it has the potential. I don't really think that it's happened anywhere near as much as it could. Mm, just, yeah. Just, I mean, oh, that's yeah, what yeah. I, that's what I was trying to say. That's what I was oh, trying to say. Uh, well, I think that uh, it's time will come, John. I mean, we've got, uh, what, 20 years now. Uh, that we can remember moments, uh, remember true. various centenaries uh, for the interwar period. And I think in particular, we're going to have a big boom here in the next you know, five to seven years with regards to this idea of the Roaring Twenties, 
There'll probably mm-hmm. be a bunch of historical fiction set then. I would imagine some games set mm-hmm. then as well. Uh, you know, when it comes to something like historical strategy, there's a lot of work that could be done uh, with various conflicts during the interwar period, the build up to the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Of course, but then you know um, Japanese conflicts uh, during the 1930s, right. uh, particularly in Manchuria, uh, have really been dealt with, and I think that mm-hmm. is uh, potentially uh, fertile ground uh, for new representations for the past. Uh, and then I also think something like, um, kind of bringing up conflict again, uh, you know, the Ethiopian War uh, with Italy mm-hmm. is something that could be dealt with, and I think. Uh, you know, I would hope that uh, maybe some new developers would come into that space and adapt that history because that is something that is critically important uh, to the history of uh, Ethiopia, to the history of modern Africa in general. Uh, and I think that uh, it would be great to see a game or even some other form of historical fiction come along and uh, bring new awareness uh, to that. Yeah. And as far as something like maybe grand strategy, you could think of... Uh, oh, I don't know. History of League of Nations would make for a, mm-hmm. an interesting, uh, yeah. if very sad, <laughs> game <laughs> of grand strategy. And kind of at a lower micro level, you could do something on the Great Depression um, worldwide, Great Depression and its implications. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could do something on uh, espionage and spycraft, uh, cryptography as mm-hmm. a very big issue here uh, in the interwar period. So, I mean, for me, it's it's kind of my historical bread and butter. It's the era of right. history that I know the best. It's the one that I've written the most about. Right. Uh, and so I see nothing but potential, but perhaps I'm wrong there. Maybe I'm just uh, looking at things with uh, uh, rose tinted glasses. Oh, no, I, I completely agree. And it's funny because you, you, I was going to ask you, Hey, you know, give us your, what's your, what's your non-obvious dream game set in the interwar period. But, you know, but there, as you kind of just riffed off, there's so, there's so much potential there again. And maybe I'm not being fair. I feel like maybe British TV has done a little bit of stuff on twenties and thirties. And oh, there's yeah. a little bit of roaring twenties, of course, the great Gatsby. And then, you know, there's great, yeah, great Gatsby, and, uh, Brideshead know. revisited. I mean, right. so much so, uh, Downton Abbey too. Yeah. So, but even there you see, we're kind of like you mentioned the, you know, Italy and Ethiopia is such kind of would be such a kind of a, divergence from that but and maybe i'm not being fair it's always just felt to me kind of like it's always discussed in the wake of world war one or as a preempt to world war two but sure maybe that's and you know more about this than i do i mean to what extent is that baked into discussions of the interwar period i mean is that yeah. just what it is an interstitial moment that you're never going to get past that yeah there's a what i would call a kind of permissious teleology that goes into the interwar period as though um basically what happened during the interwar period uh, didn't matter because we were just headed towards the Second World War, right. Um, right. which you know was something I would strongly argue against. You know, particularly in the 1920s, there was potential for uh, peace after the First mm-hmm. World War, and certain decisions were made during the interwar period. Uh, certain kind of uh, historical turns were not taken, uh, and it did lead to the Second World War. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to look at the interwar period as a just inevitably leaving to the Second World War or as uh, a sequence of failures, right? There was plenty of moments of pretty remarkable success, even for something uh, as derided as the League of Nations. You know, there were moments in the late 1920s, early 1930s, when things seemed to be getting better, uh, Mm -hmm. when something like the Weimar Republic in Germany, uh, which witnessed a huge uh, outpouring of remarkable culture, 
during that time period when it seemed like it was going to survive, um, but then it didn't. So I think, you know, we look at the interwar period, uh, there is this kind of feeling that, uh, that particularly amongst students uh, and those not necessarily as well acquainted with history to look at it as something that could just be glossed over. But I think there's so much history that came out of that period that, um, you know, it's really worth returning to and perhaps, unfortunately, uh, relating that history to maybe some of the things that we're going through right now. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. <laughs> so we'll get a roaring 20s. That's, uh, that's my half class. class yeah. Half. <laughs> yeah, when speaking of roaring 20s, uh, one of the games that I've got written down here is Empire of Sin, mm, uh, which yes. is a game based in interwar Chicago. Uh, set around uh, Prohibition and the gangsters, uh, including uh, Al Capone and others uh, who were involved in uh, Prohibition and the illegal trade in alcohol uh, in various vices during that time period. Uh, again, kind of uh, interwar period there for you, but also a uh, remarkably popular period for uh, historical fiction in the United States. And, you know, kind of uh, famous films like uh, The Untouchables, uh, mm-hmm. for instance, set in this time period. Uh, and this game is being developed by uh, Brendan Romero uh, mm-hmm. and her team. And uh, it looks to be kind of a mixture of uh, XCOM and kind of grand strategy elements. So uh, I am really looking forward to that. There's been some attempts along this line before. Um, I'm trying to think of this game, but uh, there's some other games that melded kind of grand strategy with uh, XCOM micro tactics. Uh, in the past set in this era, Uh, but they weren't terribly successful. And so I'm hoping this game will kind of buck that trend. And, uh, and, you know, kind of in a selfish respect, I'm looking forward to talking about uh, crime and policing during the 1930s with relation to this game. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about this one. And there's a long history of kind of, you know, mafia themed, like you say, kind of quasi XCOMI, kind of games including some truly awful free games on mobile phones over the, over the last like 20 years <laughs> empire sin is in this kind of very meta way in addition to the romero involvement of course their son is also brenda and john's son is also um a designer out there doing his thing i don't think he, i don't think he's involved with empire of sin but there's this kind of whole meta history thing of like a dynasty of designers going on because that's that's how long the industry is here now but um empire sin is the first game in that kind of subcategory if you can call it that where i'm i'm really excited about it. it's like well that could actually be really good yeah um i'm i'm optimistic about that one yeah i think it's coming so there to the switch just... as well so yeah. fingers crossed on that one i hope it hope it makes it that one's got no i don't think it has a firm release date yet so i'm a little bit nervous well <laughs> 20 yeah that's just i wasn't shocked when cyberpunk got delayed at all yeah but then everything else got delayed. So. <laughs> well, I think we're at this weird moment um, where we are expecting new consoles uh, coming out. And so it means that a lot of games that would otherwise come out perhaps get pushed back to come out yeah. on the new console so that they have new content. Um, and so it's just one of kind of those weird uh, transition years, I think. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully these games do do see the light of day. Uh, eventually um another few titles that have no firm release date but are expected in 2020 uh we've got humankind which is the kind of new Mm -hmm. god game that's coming after the the throne of civilization (laughs) Uh, we did a whole podcast on the 
kind of a basis for that game uh, back in the fall. So go and look for that. I don't think we need to kind of retread that territory uh, anymore. Uh, Crusader Kings 3 uh, has also been announced, uh, presuming that it's going to come out in 2020. Again, we also covered uh, the news of that game's development uh, last uh, fall, uh, late last year. So go and check out that episode if you're curious about what we think uh, and what we want from a new Crusader Kings. Uh, and then we've also got Skull and Bones, uh, which is uh, Ubisoft's uh, kind of take on a pirate game. And this one, I, I'm not really clear on the details of this one. I'm not sure if it's kind of uh, aping the ideas from Assassin's Creed 4, Black Flag, or if it's kind of trying to go after something like um, uh, Sea of Thieves, uh, developed by Xbox. Uh, mm-hmm. But that one should be coming out. Uh, in 2020. Uh, and then finally, the last game that I've got here, uh, and certainly not sure at all about this one, but there's been a lot of rumors recently that we are to expect a new Assassin's Creed game. And uh, the rumors for 2020 is that this new Assassin's Creed game will be set uh, in the world of Vikings. Uh, kind of presumptive title right now is Assassin's Creed Ragnarok, uh, which you know relates to uh, kind of Vikings and their ideas about the end of the world. And uh, so that that makes sense to me, uh, largely because it fits in line with what we've seen recently from Assassin's Creed, including Origins, you know, which related to uh, the history of ancient Egypt as well as uh, Egyptian mythology. Uh, and then more recently, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which related to the history of the Peloponnesian War as well as uh, Greek mythology. So it it does kind of make sense to go to another area of the world, another past uh, in which you've got a lot of history, but then also a lot of ideas uh, related to myths and mythology. Yeah, I think that series, years ago, you and I kind of jokingly talked about after the first Red Dead Redemption came out, wouldn't it be wonderful if Rockstar just took that game and just made it in different historical settings every year or two. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happened to Assassin's Creed. You know, they yeah. have this brief kind of, well, not brief. There's this Mediterranean focus for the first couple of games. They crossed the Atlantic and now they're just free agents. They're just going to do whatever they want, which, yeah. is, which is great. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Yeah. I think it's great. And, you know, hopefully we get some, some more of those, you know, I, I can't say I'm terribly excited about exploring Viking history. Not to say I dislike it, but it's just kind of not really my bag. Uh, But there's been a lot of talk uh, in recent years, going back uh, even to the era of Assassin's Creed IV, Black Flag, of them going to places like feudal Japan, uh, of them going to ancient Rome, uh, of them maybe, you know, exploring uh, other areas in the Americas, uh, for instance. They did Assassin's Creed III set in... Uh, North America, but maybe they could do something with Central America or South America. Uh, so I think there's there's plenty of areas that they haven't touched on yet, and I've been really encouraged with the ways in which they adapted ancient Egypt and ancient Greece, uh, particularly with the inclusion of the new Discovery Tour mode with both of those games. So hopefully with each title that comes out in the Assassin's Creed series, we also still get this kind of educational DLC uh, Discovery Tour mode added on to that, which I think has been pretty successful, but I, I don't know how well it does for Ubisoft in terms of uh, money or finances, but maybe that's not the purpose. I have no idea. They have lots of money. Um, 
and I think that large companies like that, Ubisoft seem willing to kind of take chances, which is to their credit. But as you say, we're sitting here going, well, we'll see. We'll we'll, we'll see if they do it yeah. again. I mean, just the fa- again, the fact they're making the games is great. I, I'm kind of ridiculous. I have just the nerdiest kind of, you know, um, dream games they would make, like Assassin's Creed, but in the Russian Civil War, something like that, you know? <laughs> Be, well, they, they did know. do the uh, the Assassin's Creed Chronicles uh, small that's right. game that's set during the Russian Revolution, um, which I never played, unfortunately. But uh, So they've been there, So, but, but then maybe that would encourage them to go back, right? If they've, yeah. they've thought some more about it. Yeah, we, we did an episode of Richard Respond on the one set in, um, I think it was Qing, China, wasn't it? Or That's Ming, correct. China? Yeah. 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 So hopefully cool. hopefully they don't lose uh, lose their momentum with that because I think uh, overall the most recent Assassin's Creed games have been pretty good and also doing interesting things with their depiction of the past. So uh, fingers crossed with that. Um all right. Well, I think that does it for me, John. You got anything else that you want to cover? Any of those games that really kind of catch your attention besides uh, the presumptive new Assassin's Creed game? <laughs> um, just to kind of reiterate that I'm incredibly excited about Creator Kings 3. But as you said, there's a whole podcast of me gushing and ex- getting excited about Creator Kings 3. <laughs> People are welcome <laughs> to go back and listen to. Um, uh, just to kind of comment on how... Um, you know, I, I can't say this every single podcast, but I'll say it one more time at least. It, it really feels like we're living in a golden age at this point. It does. Um, like whatever games you want to play, they're there. Um, and even for people like yourself and myself who have kind of particularly focus on historical games, um, it's really there's just a wealth of options. And that's that's exciting. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, Crusaders 2 and Humankind. Humankind, that feels exciting. That feels like kind of like an, you know, like an industry-wide big swing. You yeah. Know? So. Yeah, yeah, and you know when that game comes out, we'll be on the cusp of celebrating. Uh, let's see, I think the thirtieth anniversary of the first Civilization game. Oh wow! So yeah, because the first Civ came out in nineteen ninety one. So you know when you think about that, and you know, and how many failed attempts there have been to kind of um, challenge Civilization, um, to challenge Sid Meier's model, and now we might have a moment where one of these challengers pulls it off. Um, and I think that would be, that would be great, you know, for both of us who both love the civilization series. I think we both agree that it would be wonderful to have competitors out there, mm-hmm. uh, so that it kind of pushes Civ along in maybe some interesting, um, you know, in new spaces. Uh, so yeah, we'll see what comes of that. Uh, okay, well, uh, that does it for today's episode of History Respawn. Thank you so much uh, to y'all for joining us. And if you are interested in History Respawn and you'd like to support the work that we do here, uh, please consider uh, joining our Patreon. Uh, our Patreon is at www.patreon.com forward slash History Respawn. And you can go there for news about uh, recent episodes uh and also if you're interested in what's going on with history respawn please check us out on our webpage uh www.historyrespawn.com uh and with that until next time goodbye